Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 5th of July, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Derrish. I have with me Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern Approaches from the Netherlands. And we're joined by Vanessa Beely from Damascus. Well, we're going to get started straight away today with events in France, because clearly some pretty terrible things are taking place. And there seems to be a lot more to it than uh, just French people protesting. So, Vanessa, let's uh, bring you in straight away. And you're going to take us through your analysis of uh, what's been happening in France. And, and this is how I want to start. The image on the left of the Eiffel Tower, which appears to have flames kind of racing towards it, um, and the multiple hashtags that are appearing on Twitter <clears throat> in the last week or so, France has fallen, France on fire, very dramatic, sensationalist hashtags that are being deployed um, across Twitter. In fact, we're seeing sort of repetitive tweets being put out by what are clearly bot accounts um, with the same images. That image itself is AI, um, you might be interested to know, and there are many images that are appearing that are um, AI. What I first want to look at is a bit of analysis by Alex Craner. Alex Craner was recently at the Better Way conference in the UK. His reading of events, the government of French President Emmanuel Macron is under attack by the Anglo-American imperial establishment. Now, bear with me, Alex is not in any way defending Emmanuel Macron. He is not excusing Macron's puppeteering for the global elite, as he has done um, during his uh, presidencies. But what he is saying, and, and I am sympathetic towards his overall message, if you just move on there, um, Brian. So these are the main points um, that Alex is making. I would recommend that everybody goes to his article and reads it because he goes into an awful lot more depth. So what he's saying in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 terror attacks in the US, President George W. Bush, announced to the world that you are either with us or you are against us. In 2003, there was French opposition to the US invasion of Iraq. In 2008, France opposition to Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO. It's worth noting also that Macron has a history of, um, let's say, friendship with oligarchs that are close to President Putin. There was the Benalla scandal, the security guard scandal, um, whom uh, was receiving millions from Macron's government to provide uh, security for uh, Russian oligarchs that were inside France. So that's also worth noting. Um, in 2019, Macron uh, interview with The Economist, Emmanuel Macron warns Europe NATO is becoming brain dead. In 2022, Macron confirms that Russia has valid security concerns about NATO expansionism. And in April 2023, Macron visited China and discussed BRICS. Um, a bit of it is actually missing off the slide, but there is actually also the AUKUS alliance, the alliance between the US, the UK and Australia that has effectively squeezed France out of um, military contracts. And one of the things that Alex mentions in his excellent analysis is the fact that he met with um, oh gosh, David Melvin, I think, at the Better Way conference, who has done serious analysis on the use of movies and TV series to pre-announce the plans um, of the globalist elite or the predator class. And this film, Athena, produced or published by Netflix, came out in 2022 and tells the story of ethnic civil war in France following the killing, the police killing um, of an Algerian youth. And funnily enough, fast forward to the 27th of June, 2023, and what do we have? Apparent ethnic war in France following the killing of an Algerian youth. So I then started to go onto Twitter to see how people were actually uh, reacting and where these reactions were coming from. So first of all, and this was just a random search on the hashtags France has, fall, excuse me, France has fallen and France on fire. 
So I have Amy Mech here, apparently an investigative journalist. So let's have a look at her tweet. France has fallen leading. Um, police are unable to control the migrant and left-wing riots taking place across the country. That's interesting because prior to very recently, the protests against uh, the Macron government and the globalist elite agenda in France has been led by right-wing, um, according to media reports and government demonization and criminalization of those protests. So she goes on to say, Islamic attacks, riots, murders, rapes, assaults, and lynching of police across France are part of a new normal in a country struggling with mass illegal migration. And then she says, and I find this extraordinary, I, I wonder what Alex thinks of this comment, France is now the main Islamic country in Europe, with more than 10% of its population being Muslim. Well, one, France is not an Islamic country. It has a Muslim population, which is the highest in Europe. Let's just correct that phrasing. Um, there is no coming back from this. Their future is Islamic. So I think we can get a clearer idea of where Amy Mack is taking this discussion. But let's see who she works for. Sorry. That's okay. So she works for the RARE movement, the Rise, Align, Ignite, and Reclaim movement in the United States. Just moving on, Brian, we can see what that is all about. So rise, align, ignite, I've put that in red, reclaim. Grassroots activist organization leading a movement to reclaim our republic from the network of individuals waging war on Americans, our constitution, our borders, and our Judeo-Christian values. So that's pretty clear where this organization is um, putting its, its crosshairs, and let's have a look, there is confirmation of that. Um, so they produce social media content, which provides Americans a window in the, into the deleterious effects of communism and Islamic supremacy on civilization. In addition, the principal individuals involved in RARE have been the driving force in numerous successful grassroots campaigns, thwarting subversive infiltration efforts across the world. Does that sound familiar, Brian? Uh, well, it sounds familiar to me for uh, an organisation that's been set up in order to control the public mindset. They all have a particular way of wording what they're doing. And then, of course, once you start to dig into who's behind it, yeah. you generally find maybe Mr. Soros, who I think will be giving a mention at some stage in the news. <laughs> yes. Um, and so let's have a quick look at how Rare is um, framing uh, the riots in France. So first first headline, Allahu Akbar, riots erupt in France after police shooting of 17-year-old Nahel with a lengthy criminal history. I'm not denying, actually, that Nahel does have a criminal history and that he did refuse to stop when he was asked to stop. But in my opinion, that doesn't validate shooting him. Um, Islamic rioters hunt police in France, issue death threat. We are Muslims. We have the right to kill you incredible sensationalist hyperbole. And we also have to remember, I mean, France does have in its midst a number of the fanatics and extremists that it funded and sponsored in Syria and elsewhere um, in its uh, imperialist campaigns to destabilize sovereign nations. So there is a possibility that there is a gladio operation going on and that those elements are now being weaponized um, against the French people to uh, instigate a civil war of sorts. Of course, who is being um, celebrated by rare Marine Le Pen calls for a return to Republican order amidst France's ongoing migrant and left wing. So left wing riots mentioned again. Um, moving on. So I want to just have a look at this video. This is a video in Lille of a car bomb going off. So, so th these protests have suddenly escalated into quite extraordinary violence that we certainly haven't seen since 2019. Um, and bearing in mind that the media until now had barely mentioned the yellow vest protests, the, the pension protests, the, the farmer protests, and so on. And here we have evidence of the fact that there are, um, we believe these are US manufactured weapons. I'm not a weapons expert, so I'm not going to confirm that. But reports and saying they are, and other reports are claiming 
um, that they've been brought in from NATO weapons supply to Ukraine, which would make a lot of sense if this is some kind of Gladio operation, because, of course, we're seeing NATO weapons being circulated from Ukraine into Syria, uh, into Central African Republic, into Mali, etc. So there is a strong possibility of this. We also have Britain First wading in. This is Ashley Simon, the chairwoman of Britain First. Um, many of right-wing uh, influencers in the UK were using this image of alleged barbarian hordes, I'm, I'm quoting the tweet, um, loot a Catholic bookstore in Nantes, maybe they should read a book, it may help. France has fallen. We then have, uh, moving on, Brian, you then also have Paul Golding, the leader of Britain first, uh, barbarian ward loots a Catholic bookshop in Nantes. France has fallen, as I say. You see very repetitive tweets from these right-wing influencers. And then I want to have a look at the actual looting of this bookshop, Brian, which is the video coming up. Now, have a look at the actual protagonists. Of course, they are all dressed in black. They are all masked. It's very difficult to tell who they are, but look at their hands. They are white. And I would argue that these are quite potentially agent provocateur or even the right-wing militias that have been seen on the streets recently. But of course, the framing by the right-wing elements in the US and the UK in order to foment some kind of civil strife in France is that these are all migrant Islamists. Again, Jim Ferguson from the UK, who was a former Brexit party member in Barnsley. As night falls across France, we see a nation in distress, a leader out of control and a people terrorized. Look at the, the hyperbole in these tweets. Censorship and a media internet blackout are about to begin. Um, WEF orchestrated, interesting that he brings that in, and there is a, a, a high potential, as I've mentioned, that this is being orchestrated by the globalist elite to plunge France, which is perceived as a nation looking for its own identity and perhaps looking to uncouple itself from the US uh, supremacist central power. Um, only a military intervention can bring this to an end. We'll also, where have we heard that before and again he's talking about Francis Fallen. Then we come on to what you mentioned, Brian. So this is a headline in the Express. Hated Macron Paris riot humiliation sees door open for Le Pen. Exclusive poll. So in the Express article we have the poll. Who do you blame for riots? Well immediately migrants in first place with 41%. Macron in second place. It's also worth mentioning that during these riots Five Chinese tourists were hurt. Now, I, I'm not laughing because they were hurt, but I'm laughing at, at, at the extraordinary occurrence that if these Islamist migrants are battling against French racism um, and colonialism, etc., why would they attack five Chinese tourists? Unless, of course, this is an operation to create a rift also between uh, China and the French government. So let's see who created this poll, the CEU Democracy Institute, and guess who's behind that, Brian? Moving on to the next slide. George Soros, a billionaire, philanthropist, and political activist, founded, this is taken from Wikipedia, so I haven't had to dig very far, founded Central European University in 91 with an 880 million endowment, making it one of the wealthiest universities in Europe on a per-student basis. CEU's mission is to promote open societies and expand access to higher education, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So here we have the Soros hand on uh, the events currently. And then let's have a look at what the Interior Minister, Gerald Dahmanan, said about um, the actual uh, people who were arrested. So he said 4,000 people were arrested. 90% of them were French. 10% were foreigners. Now, people are arguing me with me on Twitter that, well, what does French mean? But they can't actually answer the question themselves. And I am getting severely attacked um, by right-wing white supremacist bots or, or 77th Brigade types um, on uh, Twitter. This, I believe, Brian, is actually the UK column. I, I can't read it from here. 
Um, it's retracting the claim um, that there was an internet uh, clampdown by the government. Yes, we, Is that correct? Yeah, we, we got this. Uh, we got this wrong on Monday. We understand this right. document is not what it appears to be. Alex, right. very quickly, <clears throat> do you want to comment on this? It looks like it has been uh, graphically mounted. It's the proper Interior uh, and Overseas Relations Ministry letterhead, but as often in these cases, it's suspiciously grainy around the letterhead, and uh, it's purported to be. Uh, a notification by the French Interior Ministry that people would have internet outages during the night. I didn't find proper sources for that. People have debunked it on the usual fake news uh, and uh, uh, what do you call it, fact-seeking channels, which we don't want to give publicity to because we know what they're like. On this occasion, they were right with their great glee, but the vector is not all wrong because uh, Vanessa, who of course only uses reliable sources, has been putting out on her own Telegram channel that there has been discussion of social media posts being removed or edited to stop riots, but not an internet shutdown. That seems to be upping the ante, putting the needle up, you know, beyond max in order to get a reaction. Okay, yeah. Alex, thank you for that. Um, and just for some balance here, I'm going to bring in some tweets by people who are being a little bit more rational about what's going on. So this is Olivier Sauvage. It's worth retweeting 90% of the 4,000 arrested were French. The French government was aware of the time bomb in 2017 and asked for a plan of action to save the youth in the suburbs. The project was done, but suddenly shelved to this day. WEF did not want more social spending. And he goes on also to point out that only stupid people like white supremacists ignore that without the immigrants, France will cease to function. No garbage collected, no workers doing the hard labor in construction, the thousands of Algerian doctors manning their hospitals, etc. And the tweet below mentions that France only wants immigrants when they're winning World Cup trophies for them. There is a big element of truth in that. And of course, also moving on, Gaddafi warned in March 2011 that the uh, NATO destabilization project in Libya would lead precisely to millions of blacks who could come to the Mediterranean to across to France and Italy, and Libya plays a role in the security in the Mediterranean world. This is now coming home to roost. And we also have to remember, of course, France's colonial past. In 1961, it's worth people checking out the worst massacre in French history since the Second World War, which was the massacre of Algerian refugees in Paris and the dumping of their bodies in the Seine. Official figures say less than 100 killed. Unofficial figures are as high as 600. So that was back in 1961, a part of France's colonial history that it doesn't want to talk about. And that none of these Twitter um, influences are of course bringing in as context and recently, of course, back in mid-June, at least 78 dead. People are saying, again, way more than that, perhaps up to 600, after the fishing boat loaded with refugees and migrants sinks off the Greek coast. Um, and just finally, what I wanted to point out to people, remember in 2016, when uh, NATO member states wanted a no-fly zone over Aleppo while the Syrian Arab army was in the process, of liberate, liberating Eastern Aleppo from Western-backed terrorists, we saw ubiquitous Aleppo is burning hashtags produced by US State Department linked uh, PR firms. And I think that that is very much what we're seeing now. It's a very complex situation, but I think be aware of people generating sensationalism and hyperbole and effectively whipping up hate against uh, a sector of the French population. Okay, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. There's a lot to uh, discuss around uh, the whole of these events in France. We can do a little bit more in UK Column Extra after the news today. But one little point is that uh, several people in our chat box have pointed out that the men breaking the glass window, it was clear that uh, some of them, at least, were wearing white gloves, but whether there were other hands that were visible, I couldn't see. But uh, what we're encouraging our viewers to do, of course, is check everything we're talking about and make, make your own opinion up. Uh, but also, if you see things that uh, you believe are important for us, then do let us know. But we'll talk more about this in 
extra time today. Let's move on to Ukraine, which of course is another area of terrible events. And I've just picked up here with a headline by US General Mark Milley, Ukraine counteroffensive will be long and bloody. And um, clearly he's happy that there's going to be thousands of more Ukrainian troops sacrificed in these pointless attacks against prepared Russian positions with no air cover. I'm mentioning this several times in this report because it is so significant. No uh, NATO countries, certainly not the US or the UK, would entertain these sorts of attacks with no air cover, but we expect the Ukrainians to do it and die. And of course, where's this heading? Well, Ukraine feels it has to carry out these attacks if it's going to be fully considered to become part of uh, NATO. This was a report from a little while ago, but what was the main statement? A strong independent Ukraine is vital for the stability of the Euro-Atlantic area. And really that quote says it all for me because it's all about what NATO wants and actually Ukraine is just a player, the puppet to uh, try and get this uh, strong and independent NATO. Let's have a look at Zelensky when he was uh, questioned or interviewed by CNN on uh, how things were going on the NATO front. Aaron asked Zelensky if he believes Ukraine will ultimately get that invitation. We are days away from the NATO summit. Have you had any assurances, at least even from the United States, that they will directly support Ukraine's bid for membership? I'm grateful to the U.S. for their support. President Biden and the U.S. Congress, both parties, despite their preparations for the elections, pay a great deal of attention to the war in Ukraine. They are on our side and they support us. It's difficult for Ukraine to survive without the U.S. support, and it's a fact. I'm very direct when saying this. Without the U.S.'s help, it will become a frozen conflict. With the U.S.'s help, we will deoccupy our territory. Deoccupation of any next town is weakening Putin. We don't have to be scared of that. The U.S. decide today whether Ukraine will get invited to NATO. This is today's situation, and it's a fact. The majority of the NATO countries support inviting Ukraine to NATO. Those who have their doubts look only at President Biden, and he knows that this depends on him. It will be his decision. So he has a, he has a decision to make coming into yes, this weekend? Yes, for today, yes. He is a decision maker for today to be Ukrainian NATO or not to be. And, but I, we have great relations. I mean that, so he support our future in NATO. But we are speaking now about very, very important for motivation of our soldiers fact. Mm -hmm. no, invitation, just technical thing, just wording. Invitation Ukraine to NATO. Right. Not and down the line, now. Now. It's very important. It will push Russia. It will push our soldiers to decupate quicker because of the mobilization of the people. It's so important uh, to feel that you are really be in through around allies in the future. But we know that we will never be in NATO before war finish. So a fascinating little interview. I dislike uh, Zelensky intensely. I don't trust him. I think he's a highly, uh, highly manipulative man, but he's stuttering. He's got trouble there explaining the situation. And I believe that's because he doesn't understand what the situation is himself, because, of course, NATO is just dangling him on the end of the strings. You may possibly in the future come into NATO. And in the background, of course, things are not going well in the war and the West media is having to start report uh, to report this. So if we look at CNN here, Ukraine's counteroffensive hasn't met expectations. Here's why progress has been slow. And it's, of course, it's not just that it's been slow, it's slow and ineffective. The territorial gains are insignificant and they've only been achieved at very high cost in equipment and lives. But the BBC doesn't really know what to say because they've now switched to, oh, the problem is the lethal minefields, Ukraine war, 
the lethal minefields are holding up Kiev's counteroffensive. So the BBC now no mention of the fact that the Ukrainian forces are being forced to advance with no air cover into those layered prepared uh, Russian defences. And if we look at some little clips here, this is nothing too much, but this is more footage of a few isolated Ukrainian infantry fighting vehicles. I don't think there's any tanks in this picture, but you can see the devastation of the wooded areas. This is uh, as, a, as a result of Russian artillery and their uh, so-called flamethrower systems. Um, these very small Ukrainian attacks have been wiped out with high loss of life. The Leopard tanks have not done the job. Of course, nobody expected them to, apart from the hype in Western media. And this is just one of many pictures of burnt out Leopard tanks. So nothing battle changing about the tanks, uh, but they've certainly been changed by the battle. And uh, the Russians have been particularly active in blowing up ammunition dumps. They've had numerous successes over recent days. Of course, the Russians are also taking casualties, but the key point is that the um, the weight is on the Ukrainians because they are the attacking force. Meanwhile, in the background, we have many videos of very large uh, Russian trains bringing in uh, artillery, reinforcement, armor, and these are going on day and night, clearly demonstrating that the Russians are having no problem with actually reinforcing. We now understand that in the, uh, we'll call it the northeastern sector of the front, uh, Russian forces um, have been reinforced up to 180,000 trained troops. And at the moment, those troops are static. They're fighting off these relatively minor attacks from the Ukrainians. Uh, but in the future, we might expect them to go on the, the offences themselves. The West has continually said that the Russians are going to run out of ammunition, missiles and equipment. Uh, but if we actually have a look at the Russian production facilities, this is on a scale that the US, uh, NATO, the European Union can only dream of. And these assets are being produced Incre increasingly quickly, and Russia has the means to get them to the front. So massive factories here producing the hardware that Russia needs. Ukraine, as we've just heard from Zelensky, can only do what it's doing with the help of the US. And uh, meanwhile, attacks on civilians are still going on. So more raids by Ukraine into the Donetsk um, civilian areas. These are largely unreported in the Western media. And then we have um, incredible reports like this. It's from the new voice of Ukraine, which Mike Robinson has mentioned a couple of times now. Ukraine's losses are several times less than those of the enemy. And this is um, Hannah Maliar, the uh, lawyer who's the deputy minister of defense in Ukraine. And if we put a bit of meat on these bones, Ukraine's combat losses are five times less in the south and eight times less in the east compared to those of the Russian forces. Deputy Defense Minister Hannah Maliar told Ukraine TV broadcasters. And uh, she also suggests that there are different method methodologies suggesting there may be more losses during an offensive than during defense, but Ukrainian losses during the offensive have not increased. And she says she's visited a hospital and they've confirmed that the situation has not worsened. Now, this is uh, this is fantasy. If we go on to the Kiev Independent here, we've got um, reporting Russian losses to date as 231,030 troops. And they're now talking about Russian casualties up at 770 per day for the, for the, the day of July the 3rd. Um, but of course, the reality is that the Russians are now reported as outshelling the Ukrainians by up to 10 to 1 in some areas of the front. So we can't possibly believe these reports that are coming out from Ukraine, that Ukraine's um, uh, losses are light and it's the Russians who are taking these massive uh, losses. This is just not tenable, but the West simply repeats uh, what is coming out of Ukraine. And I'll just add in here that the other thing that uh, we need to pay attention to is that the Western media is reporting verbatim all the claims from Zelensky or his military team um, in their claims that the Russians 
are about to blow up the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power station. This simply doesn't make sense. They control it. It's operational. Um, it's un largely undamaged. And why, what would they gain by doing this to bring this sort of problem into their own territory? So a very uh, quick uh, summary there of what's happening in Ukraine. But the key fact is that the offensive is not going anywhere. And this is going to make uh, Zelensky's position uh, with NATO in that Vilnius um, uh, meeting very, very difficult. Well, if you like what the UK column is doing, then uh, please do join us, get involved, get involved via the community, uh, take out that membership. And you can also help us, of course, by purchasing through the UK Column Shop. And very important, please share the material that we're pushing out in order to get as much information, facts and truth out as possible. Now, I want to say that we get a large volume of uh, emails we do take some of them from time to time just to make a quick report on the news. I just wanted to mention this one. Somebody is saying that Carl Lentz from the Common Law Society uh, is being held in Virginia in jail uh, in some pretty onerous circumstances. This is the only report we've had. If there's any more of our viewers can tell us more, we would like to know. Um, advert here for Jam for Freedom, which is uh, coming up. This is the festival, August the 3rd to the 6th uh, this year with lots of good music. And uh, there's the website to visit, www.jamforfreedom.com uh, for you to go and have a look at the details of what's happening. But we'll be reporting on that more shortly. And uh, we also wanted to put out um, this fundraiser um, this particular gentleman uh, we interviewed some time ago. He's vaccine damaged, uh, a physio, had worked at quite high level. Um, but the problem is that he's now got problems that he needs help with. And he's, he's got to the stage where he's having to ask for support from the public at large. So Adam Rowland here um, is organising this particular fundraiser. Have a look at it online, and if you feel you can, we'd encourage you to contribute to that. Uh, there's some more details here. This is the actual address, gofundme.com. Please help me to afford life-saving therapy. And um, where does that take us? It takes us on to this one, Hold the Line, uh, my story from the uh, heart of the Freedom uh, Convoy. And... Um, uh, you can have a look at this online and have a look at the details of the book. But we are saying to our audience, we think there's some very good uh, things reported. Alex, I think I should bring you in here because you've got a number of uh, mentions. Yes, that last one there, by the way, Tamara Litch, is the softly spoken uh, Canadian lady who's been Canadian number one political prisoner after being banned from social media for a while uh, as part of a bail condition. She is now giving high profile interviews. so. You can support her by buying the book and going to uh, her events if you're in Canada. Uh, she needs that support now. Uh, just on Drag Queen Story Hour, I know June is over and people think Pride, the worst of Prides uh, happened. I won't read this out for lack of time. I will. Do, if we keep the emails on screen, I'll just talk generally to what happens while I flick through it. But a viewer, Alan, in Skipton in Yorkshire, has asked his town hall why they are promoting Pride for children and uh, pointing out that at these events, children are sexualized by nearly or completely naked men. Uh, what's going on? The stock response from the library before inserting the boilerplate, which was even in the, the different font, you could see where the boilerplate began. The, 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 written, uh, the bit that was written specifically to Alan said, oh, no, no, you can't sexualize pride. Uh, you can't say it's about sexualizing children. It's all family friendly, and it's there to celebrate the LGBTQIA plus community. And uh, parents are perfectly happy. Alas, this is true in many cases. A shocking number of mothers, I have to say, uh, are happy with it. But this, uh, you know, a lot of well-to-do places like Skipton have this problem. Alan was not uh, dissuaded. He said equating pride with sexualization of children is entirely accurate. It's a sexual festival. You're marketing it with images of children. Sensible dialogue, please. Can we debate it? Reply, no, we won't be debating that because we're a safe space at Skipton Town Hall where LGBTQIA plus communities can express themselves freely without fear. We don't tolerate violence, bullying, or hate speech. And Alan's reply is, you won't be debating this. Are you not a public service? You're owned and run by the county council in North Yorkshire, or are you a dictatorship? 
your response sounds rather undemocratic. I might have taken you don't believe you could defend your position in a debate. And that's not just by the by or bygones, because uh, tomorrow, Thursday, the 6th of July at 1 p.m., Skipton Pride will be hosting Drag Queen Story Hour at the library. And peaceful and decent people are invited to make their feelings known outside the library. A couple of articles of ours to mention as well. Uh, Can we trust our universities and colleges by two British academics brave enough to give their names? Unsurprisingly, they're female academics. There seems to be less cowardice among them. Dr. Ursula Edgington and the lead author, Professor Gloria Moss, who in her own name will be carrying on the rest of the series of five articles. Some shocking details and very necessary there. And uh, a long but very worthy read from uh, Eurocrat, Irene Lost, on the European Union technocracy, bureaucrats and the theft of democracy. She gives an EU civil servants account of why the bureaucrats are not entirely to blame and many of them are sceptical. Well, the proof of that, I hope some of our viewers will think yes, right, but the proof of it is that one of them is a UK column viewer and now author for us. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, I'll just add uh, a little bit more. We've got uh, uh, this article up on the UK column website as well, the NHS, uh, jewel in our crown or thorn in our side. Sorry, not article, this is an interview with Debbie. Uh, Extremely interesting. And coming out Thursday, the 6th of July, we've got What Did Pfizer Know? Shot in the Dark. So watch out for that one. And uh, we just put up the ad for the Great Net Zero debate. So that's uh, 7th of July, 1745. It's taking place in Glastonbury uh, Town Hall. And Sandy Adams has been the lead for putting this together. So it's local people um, taking on the Glastonbury Town Council to talk matters to do with net zero. And I'm very pleased to say that UK column, largely the work of Mike Robinson, will be helping to get that out on the uh, internet for people to see what's happening as it takes place. Now, I think it's back to you again, Alex, uh, with Orkney Council. Secession. No longer just an American phenomenon in talking points, Brian. It's come to Britain, more specifically to Scotland, more specifically to still to Scotland's three island self-governing areas, who are three of the 32 council areas in Scotland, with special legal status, uh, agreed not least by Alex Salmond, the then First Minister of Scotland, as Scotland was ramping up for the first independence referendum. We all know there's going to be a second one at some point, but in 2013, the first one uh, had a Lerick pledge afterwards uh, that Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles or Outer Hebrides uh, would have more self-government. Orkney, just yesterday, and I haven't heard the result of it yet, but the news was carried a day or two before the the, the council meeting, Orkney Council at Kirkwall has looked at proposals to become a territory of Norway. That's just the most eyebrow-raising of them. They've got several options on the table. Um, Crown dependency, overseas territory, which is the new polite name for a colony. Both of those would involve keeping the king and uh, if they were to become a crown dependency like the Isle of Man or Jersey or Guernsey, they'd only require British help for passports and defence and for parity of their currency. They'd do everything else themselves. Um, Mr Stockton, the leader of Orkney Islands Council, points out that there's a groundswell for this and that they've been Scottish and therefore British for a mere five and a half centuries. That's a, a drop in the bucket compared with Ork- Orkney's previous Norse history. Uh, this isn't wishful thinking uh, because uh, number 10 Downing Street has had to rebut it. Uh, people will see that there's no actual legal response here. Number 10 Downing Street is saying, well, there's no mechanism. We can't see how it would work in law. Not it's unlawful or whatever, but it's never been done before. We have no plans to change it as if they owned Orkney. But Orkney and Shetland and the Western Isles even have their own law, Oodle Law, uh, which has not been fully codified. They've got a strong case to make here. They're completely fed up with how Scotland and Westminster have governed them. Uh, So secession is possible in the crucial environment uh, or the conditions that, that make it possible where you have local people. Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles all are completely dominated by independent councillors sitting in those three island councils. They cannot be whipped by the party system. If those councillors vote to declare independence, even unilaterally, well, we're into international uh, law territory there. And indeed, what's source for the goose is source for the gander. The Scottish Nationalist uh, newspaper, The National, has reported as an exclusive, i.e. nobody else is interested, that at Scottish level, um, arguments are being made that Scotland could do what uh, oppressed countries in other parts of the world do, uh, although Scotland isn't oppressed, but they could make the case in order to uh, gain independence. The, the key point here is that the Scottish Government and the Supreme Court of the UK are organs of the British state and that the case for Scottish national determination cannot in international law depend on just those state organs. 
So if it can happen to Scotland, uh, Scotland can have it done to it by its island groups, but they won't be joining England if that happens. They'll be forming rather happy self-governing territories, a bit like Denmark's Faroe Islands, with whom they may end up in union. Um, Louisiana in the United States has got the same uh, groundswell. Here, it's uh, reasserting, and I won't read this, the uh, 18th century position that the states remain sovereign. This is the latest of several states that have signed this uh, kind of pledge into law. It's gone through the Senate in that state, uh, Missouri, uh, the Dakotas, uh, some of the Rocky Mountain states, New England states have reasserted this in similar uh, measure. This is the doctrine of the lesser magistrates in action. And uh, red state secession on blogs, uh, on a Substack reports that the Texas uh, uh, nationalist movement, which Mark Anderson, who's a real expert here, tells me is not loved by all Texans who, who uh, distrust uh, Washington, D.C., but the TNM, Texas nationalist movement, is trying to get a unilateral, a bit Orcadian style perhaps, a, a unilateral declaration that it's out of the USA. Texas, they say, is the most hopeful state here. But others, perhaps with less strategic depth, might follow uh, if the first state takes that move. Alex, thank you very much. A lot of information there, which you've covered uh, quickly. Um, I just want to say I remember some time ago looking at a map, which I believe came out of the European Union, which was indicating that certainly parts of um, the Northern Ireland, uh, the Northern Isles, so uh, Orkney, possibly Shetland, would go to Norway. And I believe I'm talking at least 10 years ago. So I'm fascinated that this has reared its head at the moment. Yes, this is uh, absolutely on the cards because the Orcadians feel themselves to be Norse more than Scots. And back in 1979, 2013, 2014, all the inflection points of Scottish nationalism, the Orcadians in particular have shown the most gumption and have said, no, uh, we're only barely Scottish. Uh, we feel more British than Scottish and certainly not Scottish nationalist. So it could well happen. Okay, thank you for that. Well, we're seeing turmoil and breakdown. It's happening in UK, it's happening in France, it's happening in the USA. So it appears that the hidden hand is working at a global level. But in UK, of course, one of the areas where we've seen uh, um, decay and chaos at work is the UK military. And uh, let's uh, pop uh, Radikin, Admiral Radikin, back on screen, the head of the military. Uh, this is the headline from the Mail a couple of days ago. Britain's top military officer faces a grilling by MPs after the head of the army quits over budget cuts. So this is General Sanders quitting. Well, it's not just uh, budget cuts. It's him saying that it, essentially if we cut to around 70, 73,000 for the army, we don't have an effective fighting force. I'm labelling Radikin in here is unfit for, pur for purpose because I think this man is unfit for the job he's doing. Uh, but let's remind people uh, that back in October 2021, we reported, okay, the headlines from the mail here, uh, but we were talking about a Marines, uh, Royal Marines General who killed himself after what was described as a bit of fallout over changes to the Royal Marine, uh, but it was also connected uh, with deployment of forces. Um, Sir Tony Radikin was pretty outspoken at the time. He said, I will engage with ministers and our international partners. The debate has to be toned down and ideally stopped. This is about my authority. I think you gain something about this man's personality from the words. Uh, but he said that international engagement by uh, CGRM Major General Holmes is to stop. Um, he went on to say that the focus is to ensure the Corps delivers on its task, seeking opportunities for increased integration with the Royal Navy. And of course, this was uh, anathema to the Royal Marines themselves. Uh, this was some of uh, the messages from uh, Major General Matt Holmes himself. He'd had a tough year. He felt beaten down, not listened to. He said he didn't trust Admiral Radikin. It's been awful. You should see the tone of some of his emails. And he said he's, he, he had been kept away from ministers and it's all about his narrative. And of course, if we follow Radikin's narrative through, uh, we see failure in the Royal Navy. We see failure in the military. 
We also see failure in Ukraine, albeit that uh, Admiral Radikin has been there with the Ukrainians and talking to their uh, military staff. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot reported on this and it was all pointing uh, back at Admiral Radikin. Uh, but let's bring in this latest report uh, in the Telegraph, Colonel forced out of the army after stating men cannot be women. Um, so incredible times. This can't be accidental policy. It's got to be deliberate. The result is the breakdown of our armed forces. And clearly this is planned. Alex, uh, bring you in here, uh, taking us back into one of the weapons used, which is the woke agenda. We now have a trifecta, Brian. We have uh, the question answered with, from three, three different angles. Who is in uh, top in the hierarchy of aggrieved causes that are uh, patronised by a pa uh, given patronage by the state? Uh, just stop oil here. And I've used Thread Reader app to bring their tweets together because Twitter is locking itself down to outsiders now. So the show notes will also point to Thread Reader app. Just stop oil proudly announced on the first of July that they had used some of their. LGBTQ plus supporters to disrupt the Pride Parade, previously unthinkable and sacrilege, as several satirists were directly calling it, using that word sacrilege. Uh, they blocked Coca-Cola's uh, float, so their, their truck going through the Pride Parade, and they sprayed black and pink paint over a London road. And they explained why they'd done that. Uh, but uh, I think what the first thing we'll do is look at a very brief clip, uh, which will just play out silently in the background uh, of what happened here. So uh, here they are. You can see they're professionals, Brian, because unlike most of the footage we show from the public, this is filmed in landscape. So they thought about that. Uh, they're spraying, spraying, spraying some pink streamer stuff into the float, sitting in the road. Uh, they've got themselves some nice gear. Uh, look at the shocked faces in a moment of those on the top of the Coca-Cola float, because these are all the corporates saying we pay homage to the state religion of LGBTQ+. And uh, they don't really know what to do. It would be rather bad publicity for them to get Just Stop Oil out of the way. Uh, so they're chanting Just Stop Oil at this point. Uh, they are just now staging a sit-in. And uh, if we go on to see uh, what happens uh, in the further explanation next, uh, LGBTQ plus supporters of Just Stop Oil basically said, Bride, you're not top of the tree anymore. Because, and the, the, the cover story was LGBTQ people will be amongst the marginalised who suffer the consequences of societal collapse. So you lot at Pride need to pay lip service to an even higher religious goal, which is no new oil and gas licenses. So they say at the bottom, Pride is a protest, interesting acknowledgement. So everyone's being told at school and whatever that has to take part in Pride, they're, they're protesting. But Pride in London is not uh, uh, approved by them. And there's just a still of Just Stop Oil, proving that they have outranked the Pride religion. That's quite something. Um, but it, it, in fact, that's um, not the only indication uh, uh, that Pride is not top of the tree anymore, because also from London Pride from the last couple of days are these fetching Ukrainian war maidens with their blue and yellow uh, swords with the Volya, the uh, Ukrainian Sich crest in them. And they're posing right in front of the uh, conventional LGBTQIA plus uh, banners and just stop oil. So. Possibly, uh, you know, when it comes to a clash, and you've said this before, haven't you, Brian, uh, people of homosexual inclination who thought this was about protecting their legitimate interests and uh, their safety um, are actually finding that they've been cruelly used by the culture that has uh, spun this out into, into the biggest religion going in society, because all of a sudden they are third ranking uh, below war in Ukraine and uh, the green transition, Brian. Well, I certainly do believe that, and I've believed it for a very long time, Alex, that uh, initially the gay community were to be used as an attack on heterosexuals and uh, society at large, and the pretext was in order to give them greater freedoms and protections. Uh, but of course, that was only part of the game, and we're now starting to see them, as you say, slide down the pecking order as these latest... Uh, I've got to call them scams, come to the fore. So if you're part of the gay community, um, watch out for what's coming because it's going to get worse. And this is the real shocker now coming from London Pride. Uh, you're going to hear a brief clip now of Richard Angel with a double L, who is the chief executive of the Terence Higgins Trust. That's Terence with a double R. It's a trust named after the first known British uh, man to die of HIV on the diagnosis. And here he is uh, addressing a crowd at London Pride. Listen to the two points he makes to the revellers. 
Thank you very much. Hey, Soho Square. My name's Richard Angel. I am the Chief Exec of the Terence Higgins Trust. I have two very short messages for you. Firstly, waiting for healthcare is wrong. If you're waiting for a HIV test, a sexual health appointment, to get on PrEP, or for gender-affirming surgery and healthcare, it is wrong that you wait. And we will not tolerate the waits in the system for people who want to go about and live their lives. Secondly, your sexual health, your health and your human rights are not different. They are one of the same. And ending the wait in gender-affirming healthcare is a way of ending the HIV epidemic. We could be, we could be the generation that ends the HIV epidemic. We can do it by 2030. We could be the first country in the world to do it. And it could be the first time we've stopped a virus in its tracks without a vaccine, without a cure. This is our job. We cannot let ourselves down. We cannot let people out there down. We've got to do it together. Please stand with us. Everyone in the LGBT community must fight this virus together and stand up for our equality. We're not equal until we're all equal. Thank you very much. You stand up. Be safe. Look after your healthcare. Thank you. So between pleading that uh, people of his persuasion should go to the top of the queue in the massive NHS waiting list, otherwise it's a human rights abuse, and throwing out condoms to the audience, the main point he had to make was that uh, by uh, giving people what he calls gender-affirming care, which at least in some cases is gender reassignment surgery uh, and the uh, medical treatments, the chemical treatments that go with it, uh, Britain can become the first country in the world to stop HIV being an epidemic. How does that work, Brian? I have, in fact, asked him uh, at the Terence Higgins Trust, but had no response to the email. I also asked him whether it was the official policy of the Terence Higgins Trust. Well, how? Uh, of course, we, we've no idea. But what I see is that, of course, it's, again, it's a focus on one part of the community. The reality is that many, many people with all sorts of problems are having trouble with the, uh, with the NHS. So a lot of rhetoric coming across here. A uh, lot more to be discussed on on this, but uh, we're a little bit short of time, so I'm going to move on. Uh, I'm going to come on to the subject of Germany. Now, this report is from last year, March, in fact, but the headline was pretty specific. Germany is building what is expected to become Europe's largest military. And uh, I've highlighted um, that it contains quotes from a gentleman called Schultz and Jana Hugleran, who uh, has some interesting things to say. So if we just have a look at a bit of this, I've only taken two. Um, so this is commenting on um, uh, a dialogue in the, in the Reichstag, and it says Germany's parliament erupted into a rare standing ovation, a roar that filled the main chamber of the Reichstag, a building whose destruction and rebirth were at the centre of the horrors of the last world war and was now again witness to what Germans had labelled a Zietenwender, a historical turning point. And uh, I'll add this one as well, um, because the comment is that defence expert Jana Puglaran watched on in disbelief and stated, it was mind-boggling for me to see this because for many, for many of the things that he had basically decided overnight, I had fought for years and I was sure to never see them materialized. So this was a report about effectively the re-militarization of Germany. And uh, even though the Germans have got problems producing munitions at the moment because they can't keep up with demands from Ukraine, certainly won't on their own, they are looking to dramatically increase weapon output. And there's been a statement that the German armed forces are to be increased. But uh, if you follow this through, it brings you via this particular person. And I'll, I'll get Alex to comment on, on this in, in just a moment. But this is the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, here's the title with a bit of N NLP, Reshape Global Europe, Facts That Matter. And just have a look at this comment here. The EU can overcome the new challenges it faces and can, quote, shape the global order. 
To achieve this, Europeans will need to improve their joint capacity to act. Uh, Alex, uh, very quickly, because the clock's running away from us, um, it doesn't look good. We've got these tremendous riots and breakdown in France, and next door we've got a Germany where it seems that there's a groundswell to reinvigorate uh, the military uh, at the same time as they are getting closer and closer to direct involvement in the war in Ukraine. This is the EU sovereign uh, brigades, the souverainists' uh, response to uh, global Britain. They're now talking about global Europe and European sovereignty. And this is the same think tank, the European CFR, uh, whose British uh, member, um, uh, Nick Whitney, as we very, one of the very few people who covered five years ago, said that British and French nuclear uh, weapons were really a, a joint asset with the Germans and anyone else in the EU club. So, no, that's, that's the response. It, it is breaking down uh, the nation state in order to have uh, a homeland to be proud of, particularly in the German case, and that homeland will be called Europe. But uh, the talk of the town in Brussels is not, we're going to be the shapers of the world. The worry now around the EU and NATO and it's quite openly being chatted about is, are we even the dominant geopolitical force on the continent of Europe? Yeah. Well, the linkage on uh, my research on that little section took me through to this, the Power Atlas. Uh, it was talking about seven battlegrounds of a networked world. We haven't got time to do the, the, the detail of it, but just to give this, which uh, leapt off the page, uh, Mark Leonard is commenting in this particular section of this report, power is now defined by control over flows of people. Uh, that's the migration, the created migration problem, goods, money and data, and via the connections they establish. Only states that see the new map of geopolitical power clearly will be able to, quote, control the modern world, unquote. So it's pretty easy the moment we're delving into the politics of Europe to see the fact that uh, the agenda is all about control, not just of Europe, but of larger uh, regions of the world. Okay, well, I did say we would mention him. This report comes from Russia Today, I believe, um, but it's reporting that uh, uh, George Soros is going to chop at least 40% of his open society staff. Uh, I found this very interesting because one would have thought he needed all those staff at the moment to help control uh, the troubles that are hitting so many countries, but apparently not. Uh, but uh, we know he's still there active. So what this reduction is about, we'll have to wait and see. And I also wanted to pop up on screen uh, this. Now, this interview was done some time ago. I think it was about five years ago. Uh, but as I rewatched part of it a couple of evenings ago, I was just struck by the expression on this young lady's face, the arrogant the arrogance and the hatred uh, because she disagreed with what the uh, Hungarian foreign minister was saying. And I decided to screenshot it because I think this one image tells us so much about the BBC itself and what happens if you dare uh, to challenge their line on migration and multiculturalism. Uh, Alex, uh, we're just about out of time, but you've got a couple of uh, images, I think, to take us out of the news with. Yes, uh, the good old and finally. So uh, the first of them is two cartoons uh, or headlines side by side. Uh, it's Freudian slip to call them cartoons. Uh, Euro News, in its green rubric, is reporting that the science now tells us that dogs could become more hostile to humans as the planet heats up. Uh, on hot and polluted days, dog attacks could become more common. One of my Telegram channel subscribers has already replied to me that in many countries, people feeling afraid of a dog is now logged as a dog attack. Uh, so make that of, of that what you will. And the right-hand headline here is obviously satire, but rather close to the bone. Uh, above uh, an image of uh, documents uh, of doctors in white coats or, or lab technicians in white coats, we read the headline: "Scientists who didn't predict a single thing accurately for the last two years." confident they know what the weather is going to be like in 100 years. And an, a bona fide cartoon to take us out. Uh, this is a cartoon of NATO headquarters in Brussels. Uh, a general is answering the phone and uh, blaring down the phone, a voice says, send money and guns. And the general behind his shoulder says, is this Zelensky again? And the gentleman taking the phone call says, no, Macron. 
It's good, isn't it, that we can still have some humour reflecting on the terrible events in the world. And uh, that cartoon, I think, says so much. Well, we're at the end of the news. Um, we need to finish there, although there's a lot more to discuss. We want to say, as always, thank you very much to the viewers. Wherever you've come from in UK or worldwide, it's wonderful to know that you're all there. And it's wonderful to have all the support that you are giving to UK Column. We'll end there. Thank you for joining us. We have got an extra UK Column Extra today. And uh, for those who are signed up members with UK Column, uh, we will see you in a few minutes. Goodbye.